Hello and welcome to another Political Party replay special. This one from Johnny Mercer from 2019. Now, last week we had William Hague and um, I wanted to pick Johnny Mercer straight away afterwards because I always say that William Hague's the funniest guest I've had on the show. But, I mean, Johnny Mercer runs him a close second. <laughs> it's just so funny. There's a way that he tells stories that is so comedically perfect that even when it feels like you shouldn't laugh, you can't help yourself. And this... Johnny's just got such amazing life experience and um, there's something really earnest about him and just he's such a formidable campaigner as a result but he's also very very funny and you can tell that he's got very very strong values and and all that really comes across and it just makes for such an entertaining evening um so uh from the past from 2019 which I know I've said this for a few of these guests it's only four years ago or five years ago by the time you listen to this maybe but my god wasn't this a different world Johnny Mercer from 2019 
terms of the political lessons that you've learned from being in the military, one of the <clears throat> narratives around Britain's engagement, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan, was that the kit wasn't good enough, that guns were jamming, there was a, the sense that actually it was all a bit messy. Was that your experience living it? Look, this is what first sort of triggered my uh, interest in this stuff. I mean, when I first, I first went to Afghanistan in 2006 and we had, um, I was at what's called an OMLT commander, so an operational mentoring liaison team. So basically, me, three Royal Marines and 92 Afghans, right? So we had to train these guys and take them on operations. So there was a six-week cycle. I mean, I, I genuinely can't believe this was only sort of 13 years ago. It sounds like something out of the 1800s. But we would get these guys turn up, six-week cycle. You train them for six weeks. You take them on operations for six weeks. They go and leave for six weeks, and then they do the cycle again, right? But obviously, those with a brain went on leave for six weeks and never came back. So we had an 83% desertion rate. So every time they came back, you're starting again with these guys. Um, and it is a totally, totally different culture. I came out on parade one morning, uh, and there was a guy dead just on the end. And they'd had a fight over weapons, and this guy had been sort of beaten to death with the butt of a weapon. Jesus. Um, and this was the early days when we, you know, we didn't really understand uh, what we were doing. Um, you know, some extraordinary stories. The, the company commander, everyone was a bit sort of fishy around him. And I was, I remember talking to the interpreter and saying, you know, why, what, what's this guy's reputation? He'd been with the Northern Alliance and he captured some people and uh, he just left them all to, to boil in, a, in, in one of those uh, big metal ISO containers in the desert. Uh, that was his way of dealing with uh, with the enemy. So, look, these are it's an extraordinary experience, and and then to take these guys on operations, you, you could never tell when you came under contact. So, so what I would do with my little small team is always say, look, guys, you've got to stick together, right? So I'd be with the company commander, they'd be with platoon commanders. You have a company, three platoon commanders. Uh, the Marines would be with the three two commanders and I. And so, you know, when you're operating over the ground, you're sometimes 200, 300 meters apart. I was like, guys, fuck that. You need to be, right, we need to all stick together because you had no idea when the rounds started coming down, it was like, it was like the Olympics. These guys would fucking just go. And, uh, you know, and suddenly you're there, like, you know, sort of, sort of pinned down and, and it's just the four of you. And, uh, I mean, I was lucky. I, on my first tour, I didn't really get up to much, but some of the stories, um, you know, from my peers who were operating at the same base, absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary, um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, you know we had we had to learn pretty fast. There were there were one or two Afghans who um, who were fine, but uh, uh, it's just such a different culture. Um, they you know they 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 prioritise different things. It's a really interesting country. I think it's a beautiful country um, with some beautiful people in it, um, but they have had generations of corruption and violence. And you can imagine the sort of population that inculcates. Have you, <coughs> have you been back at all? As a city? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought you might have gone with a select committee or a, an all-party group or something. And... I couldn't think of anything worse. I mean, I, I would... Um, no, no. I mean, uh, no, I, I obviously went back a number of times, but... Um, I don't really, f I, I, I st obviously, friends of mine from the same era like Leveson Wood and people like that, they go out and make all these films. I, I couldn't really think of it. To, to be honest, by the time I left in, in my last tour in 2010, I, I kind of had enough of the place, really. You get to it, it's quite sad because you get to a place where you think, 
you guys have had, you know, if you think about the money we've put into Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, and all the problems that go with it, and I totally accept, you know, we, we haven't done the best we could have done. Uh, but if you think about the money that's gone into these countries, there have been opportunities that they've decided not to take. And personally, I found that, so I always operated at the small team level, um, always in combat, guys who get injured and killed and so on. And I just felt that um, um, we deserved a little bit better from the local population. Um, and so, by the, you know, I, I'll, I never want to go back, to be honest. Um, I'd love them to flourish and be an amazing country. I think they're a beautiful country. I think they've got a, some amazing people there, an amazing culture. But at some point, they have the, the corruption is, is absolutely extraordinary um, to a level that we would never really understand in this country. Um, and it gets to a point where you think, you know, if you're not going to help yourself, uh, and that's how I felt, and so it's probably time to leave. Not everyone feels like that, um, you know, uh, and so on. But for me, certainly, I'd kind of had enough. How hard is it to engage with normal life, particularly in between tours where, I mean, obviously having never been, and I know that films aren't all, you know, I know that American Sniper isn't the documentary and that The Hurt Locker isn't the stuff like that, but the, the scene that always stays with me is that scene in The Hurt Locker where he's come back from a bomb disposal unit and then he stood there in a, an American supermarket facing a wall of cereal, all in different colours, and like the banality of modern life compared to what you've seen must be a bit peculiar. But you've you got to understand, it's not, a, it's not a question of thinking, I've had to deal with really serious shit, therefore I'm not interested in this trifle stuff. It's the fact that you get so... <laughs> one of the hardest things I found to deal with was not you know, the blood and guts and the fighting and all that, it's just the intense pressure. Yes. So if you're, in a, if you're in a job like mine, where you're doing the terminal control of weapon systems, so basically you've got helicopters and jets and they're dropping bombs, all right? And if you get that wrong, obviously it, things go very bad. And, and, and three or four of my friends, my peers, have killed people in their own teams. So, you know, it's, for me, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the kind of coming home and thinking that I have you know, that thinking these things over and over again, it was just the pressure of, of having to deal with life or death decisions in combat, which is a totally different environment. Mm -hmm. Literally, people are getting shot and killed around you. Um, it was just the kind of pressure of that that I found quite difficult to readjust to. And that's where that comes from. You know, you look at the serial, that guy looks at the serials and he's like, you know, well, I've had to make decisions to whether or not I kill that kid. Um, and now you're asking me which cereal I've got. I just, I just can't be fucked. Just give me anything, right? <laughs> and that, that's where, that's where that comes from. So I have a lot of empathy with that. But I think, um, look, this is the real world. Is not the army. Is not combat. Um, and you have to readjust to it, and you have to be able to deal with it. Well, you seem to have readjusted remarkably well, and not just. I, I don't think my wife would agree with you <laughs> uh, at all. But in what way is that? Look, I, I. Uh, I got to a point where uh, I think uh, I, I, I loved the war. I loved the idea of going out, having an extremely sort of violent summer, coming home, spending most of my time drunk and then going back out again. You become kind of addicted. It's really unhealthy. It's really destruct destructive. Um, but uh, you get kind of hooked on it. You, you do. And uh, it's, it's not a good thing. I know that it's obviously a completely different arena, but is there something that politics gives you, you think, that replicates that? The, the confrontation of the House of Commons, feeling part of a team, 
a, a war of ideas instead of a literal war? No. Because... <laughs> no, because it's all so fake. Right? It's the reason I got into politics. The, we've made, you know, um, a profession of sort of inauthenticity. Uh, and that's why I came into it. So, no, I'm afraid it's, it's nothing like that. Um, it's... Uh, the House of Commons is a, you know, I learn every day and, uh, you know, particularly at the moment. What do you, in terms of what's happened in the last few weeks with three Conservative MPs uh, leaving, Heidi Allen, Anna Subrin and Sarah Wollaston, you feel like the sort of guy that they'd be tapping up to go with them? I mean, is it something you... Yeah, I was. <laughs> might that still happen? No, because, um, look, I've got a lot of respect for these guys. Uh, you can't underestimate the moral courage it takes to step out of line and do that sort of thing. Whatever your beliefs, particularly in that environment. You, you know, being an MP is a really strange job because you're with a very, um, yeah, a very strange cohort. I mean, who, who the fuck wants to be an MP, right? <laughs> so, you know, you're with, you're with a strange cohort. Everything you do is in the public domain. Mm. And everything is under the most intense scrutiny. And that brings about, if that bothers you, which it doesn't me, but it does some of my colleagues, if that bothers you, that's an immensely stressful environment. Mm. And they um, step out of that and they think, yes, I'm going to go and uh, be an independent. And I have, some, I, I have some respect for that. Personally, I think that, uh, you know, I think what's going on now is quite exciting because I think politics in this country... <laughs> has been too shit for too long. Um, and, uh, you know, the reality is there are millions of people across this country who are really thirsty for change. Um, and if you can meet that challenge inside one of the political parties and you can drag that political party with you, kicking and screaming, you'll set the country on fire. This idea that my generation is not engaged in politics is absolute bullshit. They've never been more engaged. You, they comment on political posts, they're all on Facebook. They just don't like what they see, right? So you galvanize them together under a center, center right vision about being judged by how you look after the most vulnerable, the, the, you know, everything around making the bottom 20% their lives better. Uh, yes, being internationalist and, you know, and, uh, um, you know, uh, low tax sort of, you know, about the individual and things like that. But people want, people are, are thirsty for that at the moment. I found the rise of like Jeremy Corbyn absolutely extraordinary, um, you know, and, and Donald Trump in a way. I mean, I know they're different ends of the spectrum, but uh, you, can, you can look at that and you can, you can laugh, right, because obviously it's quite funny. But you mustn't sneer at it because ultimately they've managed to do what politicians have failed to do since, since Blair, really, which is get people to go out and actually vote. Make time in their day. You've got to put yourselves in these people's position, right? They're busy, young family. I got absolutely hammered about six months ago um, for saying I wouldn't vote at the moment, right? But I absolutely stand by it because the reality for millions of people in this country is that they've got busy lives, their lives are bloody difficult, uh, they've got naughty children who don't want to go to school, um, they're extremely busy. Why should they take time out of their day to go and vote? And you don't give people something to vote for, they are simply not going to do it. And that's where you get these extremes, because the extreme sort of bunch will always vote. Um, 
And that's where we've kind of gone wrong in a way. And uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty sort of heartbreaking to watch um, because the, the same people suffer every time government goes wrong. As, you know, the people who use government all the time. Talk about you know, Jeremy Corbyn getting people to go out and vote. But more people voted for Theresa May. She increased the share of the Tory vote. Is she not part of that same phenomenon then? What's different about Theresa May if she's winning? The, the, the question as to why people vote the way they vote is the million-dollar question. Um, you know, how much of your vote as a member of parliament is a personal vote? How much of it is, um, you know, about the party? Uh, yes, Theresa May increased, uh, increased the vote at the last election. Um, but I think, I think there's kind of more to politics than just this incremental sort of up and down and, you know, flowing with the waves. Ultimately, less and less people vote in this country. And you've got to ask yourself why they do that. It's not that they don't care, right? Because politics genuinely affects almost everybody every day. Um, and... No, it's, it's a fair point about, uh, about Theresa, um, but you've got to look at the rise of someone like Corbyn, who if you look, you know, just on a very facetious level, which is what politics is sometimes, he, you know, there are elements of, of him that are not electable, but what he was talking about got a lot of people out and interested and committed to politics. Um, you know, how much of Theresa May's was actually a vote against Jeremy Corbyn? I think it's incredible in this country how... Everything politics is so negative, right? So if you look at the 20, 2010 election, uh, you know, it was all sort of, from my side, it was all about, you know, it's all based on fear, basically. 2015, exactly the same. You know, there's pictures of Ed Miliband with Alex Salmon in his pocket. Oh, the other way around. Uh, was it? Yeah, it was Alex Salmon with Ed Miliband. Was it? Okay, they all look the same to me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, 2017, don't vote for Jeremy Corbyn because he was in the IRA or whatever. You know? uh, the reality is you knock on doors, right? And they'll go, they'll go, okay, that sounds really bad. But Granny's operation's just been cancelled for the third time. Mm. So what are you actually going to do about it? And my rail link is shit. It literally just washed into the sea, which it did. Uh, you know, what are you going to do about that? That really matters to me. Um, and, and, you know, and, and Jeremy Corbyn answered those questions and we didn't. Do you, I mean, how much of an ideological conservative are you? You know, if there was a kind of Blair or something like that, let's say it came from the Labour Party or the Lib Dems or some other party, would, would that, it seems that that would appeal to you more than what Theresa May is offering. The trouble is with, with being in a political party, I, I genuinely feel that um, the, the future of, the, of a modern Conservative Party is very different to where we have been and in some places where we are at the moment. So, um, you know, and that, that's just my personal view and there are lots of different views and, and, and I, res I, I respect all of them. But uh, I, I'm not a... Um, I'd never voted before 2015... So I'm not, uh, you know, sort of died in the wall. But, but I, think, I think more people are like that. You know, when I went door knocking in Plymouth, so what I, the way I got elected, right, was they gave me this 1% chance. I was like, fuck, you know, this is going to be hard, <laughs> right? But what I did was I, I printed out my constituency on Google Maps and I marked up every single house because I thought the worst thing is not going out and losing this election. The worst thing is not reaching people like me who just didn't feel like they had anything to vote for. So we marked up every single house, went out, 
uh, December 2014, I think it was that year, with my wife and kids, worked out how many houses we could knock on a day and transposed that back from May the 7th and worked out if we started on the 2nd of January, we'd get to every house in Plymouth. Wow. Uh, and that was because I don't believe that most people in this country have died in the war, Labour, Tory, whatever. I think that generation is kind of changing. Yeah. What people want from politics is is, you know, it's not the moon on a stick, it's just representation. It's someone who's going to be their voice, someone who is there or thereabouts on their values and their ethos. Um, and that's, and I learned that during that six-month period. And I hold on to that because, you know, at the last election, you know, my side generally took a bit of a hammering uh, and my, my majority went up fivefold. So, you know, it, the idea that politics is dead is absolute horseshit. Uh, this is one of the most exciting things I think I've heard a politician say in years, because you're you're part of a party that, as you said, for the last three elections, fought on pretty negative grounds and uninspiring, not much hope in the future. And yet, within that party, there are people like you that still have different ideas, that have a more positive view of the future. That, and I think what absolutely resonates with people, whether they're left wing, right wing, or, or wouldn't even identify as that. And I agree with everything you say in that regard. Is that I think people do just want to hear some positivity, yeah. and and not a lot of positivity really has come from the Tories in the last few years. Uh, look, it's a really fair point. I, I think um, I think what you're seeing now is the collapse of a generation of sort of career politicians, and I, I know you sort of worked in that, so I don't want to offend you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, not anymore. You know, but for me, you know, the thing that drove me into politics was this incredible inauthenticity of these people yeah. right and how how that felt not only for me as a, as a veteran you know so I got into this because in in 2012 more of our soldiers took their own lives they killed themselves because of, they were killed in the conflict in 2012 oh and I was sick of the, the the incredible displays of patriotism and our boys at the cenotaph versus what I actually saw through guys who'd left, through families who'd lost loved ones, um, through those who'd become uh, uh, injured, uh, lost legs and arms and all sorts. And I just, I mean, I remember my first, the first Remembrance Sunday I came back in 2010. I couldn't go to Remembrance Day. I was like, I was like, you guys put on this great show, right? But the reality, the reality is you don't give a shit. And I just could not deal with it. That bow wave is now breaking of in, inauthenticity. And uh, you've seen that with the Brexit vote. Um, you've seen how, uh, you know, how in the election of Donald Trump. You've seen that in the election of Jeremy Corbyn. And I think it's massively exciting um, because that's ultimately what po people want politics to be. They don't, they're not asking for the moon on a stick. They're not asking for some incredible you know, solution that's going to solve every problem in their life. They just want to be represented properly uh, in Westminster by a party that understands what it's like to be in their shoes. But all the things you list there, Trump, Corbyn and Brexit, aren't around the centre, which is where you are. So how do the people on the left of the Tory party, like you, or the people on the right of the Labour Party, energise people in a way that Trump, Corbyn and Brexit has? So that, look, I was in Washington last week and, and you know, this is the challenge. How have people like... Um, um, AOC, this this new senator, uh, sorry, Congress lady in, in America, ha, you know, and they the, the thing they've had on their side, the insurgents, if you like, is that they're in opposition and you can promise stuff that can never be delivered. And that's exciting and that lights people up. Um, the challenge we have 
is getting people excited about things like social justice, around things like mental health provision, around um, uh, you know redefining the economy so that it actually works for the little person. Um, and, and that's definitely uh, tougher, but we've kind of lost the skill in, in politics, if you like, to kind of advocate for what we believe in. So to have this vision and then to really bring people with you. I mean, if you can't do that, kind of what are you doing in politics, right? Because that's, that's what it's all about. It's about trying to improve people's lives, people's everyday lives. Um, and I, lo I love that challenge. I, I, think, uh, I think it's exciting. I think... I, I also think that people misunderstand the Brexit thing, right? Yes, it was a vote about Europe, you know, take back control and all that stuff. But the reality, it was much more than that. It was a vote about, it was much more about a people throwing a leash around their own government and saying, you guys don't listen to me. You don't, you don't even know, yet alone care what it's like to walk in my shoes, to work on the minimum wage, to have a disabled child. And um, I love that because I think... Uh, I, I, I love the <coughs> disruption that creates because I think we need to create a much better product that actually works in this country where we can see increasing numbers of people voting and people actually plugging into this. You know, across Europe, you've seen the rise generally of extremist parties. Okay, we haven't had that in the UK at the moment. We, you know, UKIP's kind of dived off. Um, you know, but if we don't get, if we don't respond to the call of Brexit, which I know in London, this is really unpopular, obviously, but if we don't respond to why people voted for Brexit in constituencies like mine, 70%, right, we have to, we're, we're, we're in deep trouble. So, you know, I'm absolutely determined to meet that challenge and we can do that and we can get on and make this place work. So do you, do you say this stuff to Theresa May? Is, is her door open to you? <laughs> <laughs> Look, the Prime Minister's door is always open to me and she's very nice to me and we had a chat 10 days ago. Um, I can tell I, I, I'm in danger of getting myself in trouble um, but uh, look <laughs> Polit po uh, politics is, is completely changing and uh, in my view that generation of politicians are being overtaken by events and the, the speed at which life is changing around social media around politics it's like a horse running away and these guys are still in the stable now someone has to go and get that horse and sit on it and tame it and turn it into something we want it to be right that's either going to be the conservative party but in a completely different guise or it's going to be taken over by um, um, people with uh, darker interests um, and I think that's the challenge at the moment. You know, you look at extremism in this country, people don't talk about extremism. You know, you get, you know, you only have to look at a crowd that Tommy Robinson puts together. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Um, we don't meet that challenge. We'll be in a pretty tough place. So, how did she respond? I thought this said... was supposed to be funny. Well, <laughs> sort of bit, it was very funny at the start, but, you know, you can be... It, it can be... <laughs> Could have a bit of both, a bit of ebb and flow. But I, I mean, how does she respond to that message? Does she say, "Look, you got me wrong. I'm not that sort of politician. I'm not being dictated by events." Look, I, I, I um, the trouble, the trouble I have is that I'm, I'm pretty straightforward with everyone. So, I sat down and said to her, uh, "You know, I don't think I'm betraying any confidences because I said to her, "Look, I'm going to say this to you because I said to everyone else about you and this administration." 
um, and just had a very honest conversation. Because this is, you know, this whole politics thing, it's not actually about us, right? Um, it's a vehicle for getting stuff done. And if we're not delivering in places like Plymouth where people really rely on government, what's the point? You may as well stay at home, right? Um, I, I mean, my life up here, I've got, I've got to be honest, is, is, is pretty crap, right? So, you know, I live in a fucking hotel, uh, right? I'm basically like Alan Partridge. I have my... <laughs> I, I have... Uh, it's a travel tavern. I, have, I genuinely have my own plate. Um, and... Uh, Has anyone written and, cockpit Mercer on the side of your car? Yes, but that was, that was my daughter. <laughs> uh, um, which I was slightly upset about, um, but uh, no, the uh, you know it's it's not good. But I view I think I, my problem is is that I view politics in a completely different way. For me, it's a vehicle to get things done, right? So I literally come up here and I put myself in the washing machine because I want to get things done. And then once I've done that, I'm you know I'm back to Plymouth as fast as I can. Um, but you know, I'm not. I'm afraid I'm. I'm not a you know a big sort of uh, someone who wants to leave their constituency, set up life up here. I don't have a flat up here. My family's not here. Um, I think London is very, very different to the rest of the country. Not in a bad way. Not in a good way. Just very different. Um, and uh, yeah. So for me, this place is. It's a vehicle. That's all it is. I go to schools, and you know, and you hear little. You know. Little Sammy says, oh, I want to be an MP. I was like, don't be so fucking stupid. You know? <laughs> um, oh, I basically, I, you know, I, I sort of say to him, Look, what's the, you know, why do you want to be an MP? Wow. wow. I, I don't actually swear at you. No. <laughs> um, but I'm like, look, you totally misunderstand the point. Right? If you go through school thinking, I've got yeah. to get to Oxbridge, and you get to Oxbridge, you think, I've got to do PPE, and then I've got to get into the you know cchq and work in this department or the labor party and working there and then i've got to be an mp i mean that is that is for me that is that is not politics yeah right so i have a fundamentally different view of it and that's how i get myself in so much trouble <laughs> but uh, you, you live in a hotel at the moment you, you did you did live on a boat when you first became an mp oh that was tragic <laughs> that, that was genuinely in, in, a, in a contested field of bad ideas that was <laughs> That, that was right up there. So, so what it was, was um, I basically, I did not expect to win in 20... I don't think I've ever sort of told this story, actually. I, I did not expect to win in 2015, obviously. Um, and what we were going to do was uh, go away with the children um, and homeschool them. We bought all the books to homeschool them and take them away down to the Mediterranean and get a bit of sun for a bit um, and uh, take this, this little boat that I'd sort of done a bit of work on. And then in 2015, I, I won. And I was like, fuck, what do I do with this boat? Um, so I, um, I thought, here's a good idea. I'll drive it up to London and I'll live on it. Um, so I drove it up to London um, and I stayed in South Dock. Um, and uh, basically, uh, I went to... So when you're an MP, you obviously uh, they... Some, I, I, we're incredibly lucky, you know, they pay for your accommodation and all this stuff. And I said, look, I don't want any accommodation, I'm going to use my boat. And they said, fine, but, you know, we'll pay for it for a year and then, you know, and then we'll see what happens. But once you've entered into that, obviously you can't then, you know, get a hotel on a certain night or whatever. And uh, what happened was I lived on this boat and within about a month, everything was breaking. So, like, the toilet was fucked. <laughs> 
the hot water just did not work. Oh, man. Um, and by December, like, the whole of South Dock was covered in ice, right? Um, so I was literally, like, getting ill in oh, this man. boat. Um, and I couldn't move out because it had been paid for a year. So I just had to stag on in this boat. And it was monumentally unpleasant. The only way I got through it was by getting really drunk every night. Um, so, that, so that I fell asleep. Literally, I, I would come back and drink whiskey to fall asleep. Um, and, then, uh, and then there was the, the, refer the Brexit referendum. Uh, and then I, I obviously, I, felt, I genuinely felt like scuttling it, actually. <laughs> but South Dock's an amazing place. I, I, you know, I had this, uh, in my incredibly naive mind, I had this picture of, you know, waking up in the morning, having a coffee, by the water. You know, fucking November, they found a body in there. <laughs> Oh man, shouldn't laugh, but just the image of an empty. It's one of the worst areas for crime. It's absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Just a very bad, bad decision. I shouldn't laugh, but the thought of an MP just hammered on a freezing bug. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it was awful. It was genuinely awful. <laughs> this guy, the guy who owned the harbour, he looked at me, he, he, he thought I was fucking mad. Right? It was bad. It was a really bad decision. And, uh, and then I went back to the Partridge School and logged into a hotel, and I've been there ever since. I've got That's like, good. Yeah, yeah. That's better. Well, yeah, it's quite depressing. But... <laughs> Is it the same hotel that you use every time? Same hotel, same room, same plate. <laughs> <laughs> do, they, um, do they have a good breakfast there? Do you know what? You, once you've stayed for a little while, you get points. You get loyalty points. And as you, as you climb up the points ladder, you get breakfast in bed. No way! I'm serious. I'm serious. So, uh, so you... Um, yeah, someone, someone knocks on the door in the morning. And, and I mean, it's terrible, really. Uh, but they bring you breakfast in bed. So I find it really difficult to leave now. It's basically like, it's basically like uh, a good officer's mess. So when you're living in the, in the military, you, you know, you, you live in this barrack room accommodation and, and nothing works. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. There's, you know, the toilet's always blocked. Someone's always drunk. You know, something's been ruined from the night before. Um, and nothing really works. In, in a hotel, it, it's, it's basically like that, but everything does work. And, you know, and so, so, it's all, I feel terrible. You know, I, I mean, someone comes in, makes your bed, and picks up your pants and all sorts. It's fine, you know, I, you know it's not too bad. But it is, it is genuinely sort of quite, quite uh, depressing. Um, so I just try and work really hard in London, work till sort of 10 o'clock at night, get up 6 in the morning, go for a run, and just try and spend as little time there as I can. Um, and uh, get home as soon as I can. Oh, man. Uh, you did, uh, before I open it up to questions, I should say as well that um, on a separate boat, you saved a fellow MP's life when you went, was it around Cornwall? Well, I think the story's been slightly sort of very wrecked. What happened was um, we were out on this infamous boat that I, I didn't scuttle. Um, I thought there's no way the insurance company would pay out for like a, an axe through the bottom. Um, 
so we went out in Cornwall and uh, yeah, I took him off the coast. Quite a rough day. And uh, we pulled up in a bay about 250 meters offshore. And for some God unknown reason, I had no idea he couldn't swim. But he was, I was like, cool, I'll see you at the beach. I just thought he could swim. He jumped in and uh, about 30 yards away, like when someone's properly drowning, they're not like splashing around going, oh, this is shit. You know, they're like, they're, they're pro they're, it's what's called climbing the ladder, right? So they're trying to get out of the water. And uh, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, he, he started. Anyway, what I thought was he had my wallet. So I thought, <laughs> so I thought, uh, there's no way that wallet's going down. Uh, so I went, I dragged him to the beach. It was absolutely hilarious. Dragged him onto the beach. And uh, I mean, poor chat. He's such a lovely guy, Scott. Um, but uh, he, I mean, obviously he thought he was going to die. So he wasn't in particularly good, good shape. Um, we sort of sat on the beach and he was throwing up and so on. Um, so I went and bought him a pint of tribute. Uh, I told him to forget about it. Bizarrely, that day, so of all the sea swimming I've done, it happened to someone else as well on the same day who I had to go and get. So twice in one day, it's never happened before, never since. I don't know what was going on, like there was something weird in the water. Um, but I, I had to go and get someone else as well, who was a friend of mine in the Navy. Oh my God. Yeah, <clears throat> we went for dinner that evening with him and his wife, and he was so embarrassed that he wouldn't sit at the same table with us. <laughs> so my wife and I were having dinner, and we were like, you know, how are we going to repair this? I thought, I've got to make a joke of it. So I go over to his table with his wife, and I say, can you smell that? It smells like a hero to me. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> okay, he didn't speak to me for like six months. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man, well, uh, I've asked you uh, plenty of questions, Johnny. I'll open it up to the, uh, to the audience. Got Is this all recorded? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good laugh, though, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think you've said anything that will get you into any trouble. Excellent. I think that all your stories reflect really well on you. <laughs> well, they do. I think you Oh, man, this has already been genuinely a, bit, a very, very special night. I wouldn't worry. Thank you. Um, uh, so, let's, uh, we'll take some questions if you'd like to indicate clearly and uh, ask a question and let us know your name. Yes, there's one over there. If you were Home Secretary, what would you have done regarding the citizenship of Shamina Bagan? Look, I, 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 my personal view is that, that that's the wrong decision um, that's been made. I think that uh, she's our problem and we need to sort it out. Um, I think if you you start going down a pretty slippery route. Um, and to be honest, anything you do that gets welcomed by Katie Hopkins is probably the wrong decision. <laughs> but you've not said what you would do. You said that you don't agree. What would yeah, you she's do? got to come, she, you know, she gets come back, she gets prosecuted, and uh, you know, she, if she's committed a crime, she, you know, we, we abide by uh, the law of justice, and if, she, if, she, if there is evidence that uh, holds her to account, which I'm sure, you know, given her recent TV interviews, as, you know, I, I wouldn't suggest she's got a great lawyer. Uh, Maybe she may be spending a bit of time contemplating what she's done, but she's also got a kid who's done nothing wrong, right? So, you know, that's what a developed society does. It gets these things right. It doesn't just look at it and go with a broad brush approach. Okay. Are there any questions in this section of the room before I sort of move across? 
Yes. There's two right at the back, so we'll take them uh, in order. Uh, how, how do you see the uh, independent party uh, panning out? How do you see the independent yeah. party panning out? Look, uh, a lot of those guys in, in that party are, are friends of mine. Um, I just think, interesting thing for me is like post-Brexit, what is their vision? What is the ambition for that? I think they've tapped into something which is people, you know, want politics done in a different way around values and ethos and all that good stuff. But um, I, I, I genuinely sort of wish them all the best. I'm not sure if it's going to get much traction in communities like mine. Yeah, there was another question in that part of uh, the room as well. Uh, yeah, you spoke out about um, like inauthentic politicians, and I suppose for some people the Conservative Party sort of embody that a little bit. Why the Conservative Party for you? Uh, yeah. Um, I've got to be honest, I, I, I actually, you know, taking a clear-eyed view of it, I think the split is about even on either side. Mm. Um, there's some, you know, they've made a profession of insincerity across the, across the House of Commons. Um, why, the, why the Conservative Party for me? Um, do you know what? It came down to one thing actually in 2014, where you could leave the military in my city of Plymouth, and I had two children and a wife, and I could go on to £27,500 worth of state welfare. Average wage was £19,500. So I saw all my blokes going out of the military just thinking, fuck this, we're getting on to benefits. And I just thought, you know, you look at the, what work does, the single biggest factor that improves the life chances of our most deprived constituents uh, and things like that is having a job. Um, and I just fundamentally disagreed with it. Other people will take a different view, but that was my view. Okay. Someone's taking a very different view. <laughs> He's, he's, he's definitely claiming when he shouldn't be. <laughs> what, what's the telephone number? <laughs> I've got no idea. Right, where was, I think there was one down here. Um, yeah, hi, you described a very fragile state for serving individuals in the military transitioning out. So yeah. what additional support do you need, you think, needs to be put in place to help yeah. those so, very vulnerable individuals? Yeah. So look, the, the vast majority of people transition have absolutely no problem whatsoever and go on to a different life and move on and it's just a part of their history. The problem I've got is that uh, the military charity set, there's three and a half thousand military charities in this country. It's the easiest thing to do to stand on a on a street corner, shake a tin for, um, for veterans, right? Uh, they've also, in the last, since 2010, had £970 million worth of money. Um, and what has strategically changed for my Lance Corporals leaving, who find, you know, who get into work but three or four years down the line um, struggle, you know, where do they go? What do they look at? Can they access evidence-based care or are they just going to go and you know, sit in a field and, and smoke grass, you know, trying to sort of solve their problems. We, you know, I just think these guys deserve so much better when it comes to, you know, they serve with professionalism and I think the veterans care sector should be professionalised. They should expect to have evidence-based care that they have a, you know, a better than not chance of getting better. Um, I think that these organisations should not spend 85% of their liable money on wages. Um, I think that... Uh, um, you know, we should encourage those that actually make people better and discourage those who set up organisations because they want to feel good about themselves, helping veterans and so on, which is a very noble cause. But this shit really matters. 
to uh, some people who are very dear to me. So whilst I have a lot of time for that, and that's great, um, actually professionalising veterans care is a different issue. And the only people that can do it is government. We're the only Five Eyes country that does not have a department for veterans affairs. Not a huge department, but just a department to pull together all the functions of government. The single biggest factor in improving a veteran's life is having a job. That's not an MOD thing, it's a DWP thing. Housing, family, right, these are not MOD issues. It's a cross-government approach, and if the Prime Minister wanted to do it, she would do it tomorrow. <laughs> I think there was a gentleman there. Would anyone else like to ask a question? Oh, yes, let's take the lady behind first, and then, and then the gentleman in front. I'm going to mention the dreaded B word, um, but with regards to the Brexit okay. vote, <laughs> with regards to the Brexit vote, you mentioned that obviously yeah. 70% of your constituency voted to leave. Um, in terms of there were obviously many different reasons why people voted that way, but yeah. how big a part do you think misinformation had to play in that, and how big a part do you think it still has to play? In this thing around this thing around misinformation. The the only thing I would say to that, and I voted to remain, which is probably largely why people in Plymouth voted to leave. Um, <laughs> the only thing around misinformation that I would say, uh, your next guest, George, is a, a friend of mine, right? If you remember during that election, okay. What he was massively criticised for was saying how shit life was going to be if you voted for Brexit. But still people voted for it. So whilst we can kind of look at that and think you guys are kind of thick and you don't get it, the reality is very different to that. They saw that, okay, but they still voted to leave. Now, why did they do that? Because they felt uh, government didn't work for them. They felt life wasn't fair for them. They felt the establishment just didn't didn't know what it was like, but more importantly, just didn't care what it was like to walk in their shoes. Um, and that's, that's the challenge we now face. I think about 10 or 15% of that vote was to do about Europe. The rest of it was to do about this country, about their relationship with London, about their relationship with the establishment, with government. Um, you've got to remember, for a lot of people in this country, you know, uh, for those of us who are lucky enough, we have nothing to do with the government, right? We have, we don't use the doctors, we're not on social housing, we're not on state welfare. For a lot of people in this country, that is there every day. And if that stuff doesn't function, that is going to drive their sense of injustice that they feel. And that is why they vote for Brexit. So if we don't answer that call, uh, I, I think the, you know, the potential for sort of extremists and all the rest of it is, is, is quite significant. And unless people you know, in my position are prepared to go out and get your hands dirty and genuinely fight for the centre ground, as hard as these guys are going to vote for their extremist bullshit, right? Uh, the only people who will suffer are those people who voted for Brexit. <coughs> okay, there's a fellow in the fellow. Is there anyone on the balcony that would like to ask a question? Okay, I'll get the, so then the mic. You were subject to some criticism last year for appearing on Hunted. Um, yeah. I'm wondering what your Christmas card from Kay Burley said. <laughs> I learnt a lot on Hunted. Um, so it was Celebrity Hunted, wasn't it? And you run the run yeah. with Kay Burley. <laughs> Look, Kay is a lovely lady. She's a lovely lady. She's got an amazing heart. I think um, those pressure does strange, different things to different people. The amount of colleagues I've found over the road in Westminster who have just, in my view, just lost their shit about Brexit. 
they go on TV and say something and you're like, holy fuck, did you actually say that? <laughs> okay. Uh, pressure does strange things to people. Um, Kay, I wouldn't say a bad word about her. She's a lovely lady. And at the end of the day, she gave up time. You know, that program raises 25 million pounds for cancer. Um, and it was, a, it was a really good experience. I loved it because, uh, you know, two weeks away from Westminster, no phone. Um, you know, I'm basically being an animal, you know, for, for two weeks, at, like Adam's shower. I used to go in the morning in the, into the sea, have a shower, use a loo. It was amazing. Um, and so I absolutely loved it. Um, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat, but I don't think they'd have me back. <laughs> so the last question of the night, and therefore the best. Here we go. No I pressure. Um, what would, it's a two-part question. What would you like your personal legacy to be, and what would you like your political legacy to be? Very early to be talking about legacy. Yeah, it is. I mean, I have a pretty low, low, low bar in terms of, you know, where do I want to be in five years' time? I quite like to... Uh, I, I genuinely... The trouble is, I, I, don't, I genuinely sort of don't really have any ambitions myself. Uh, I have ambitions for uh, my community and my country. Um, so uh, in terms of it, I would, I would love to completely reset British politics right, around um, being inclusive rather than exclusive, you know, being this rather childish environment where... If it's a Labour policy, you hate it. If it's a Tory policy, you love it, and all this nonsense. The reality for people out in the country who's, for too many of them, their lives are really bloody difficult, uh, they've had enough of that. And I would like to, you know, for example, take, take the NHS out of, almost out of political control and just have it run in a, in a way that is going to meet the challenge. An incredible challenge. The NHS is an amazing thing, right? Free healthcare at the point of need for those who need it. Trouble is, unless we all agree to, to die at 80, right, the, the whole thing is going to get increasingly hard because people can live for longer, they're getting older. You're not going to meet that challenge unless you have a bipartisan discussion about how the hell you maintain this challenge. And we have to keep it free at the point of need for those who need it. Um, you know, and I would like to change politics in that way uh, to make it more authentic so that people don't feel, you know, when they see their politicians, they can actually believe what they're saying um, and we can all work together for the common good. Oh, Johnny. <laughs> oh, 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 God. Is that, is that other single beds going any evening? You just... <laughs> you just let me know. Oh, man. I have to say, like, I would never usually... I think... It's been one of the most special nights we've had, Danny. I'll tell you, oh, you I say truly, that truly everyone. think you that. Like we've had so many different people here that have so many different experiences and styles and things, but this has just been a real... Uh, uh, I can't speak for the audience, I can't speak for anyone else apart from myself, but I just leave so much more hopeful for having met you than, for the future of politics and for just reassuring that there are good people who have uh, done some awful things in war, but that have... Uh, <laughs> 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 We're not Turkish, so it's fine. And uh, uh, I think that is the lesson. Johnny, truly one of the best guests we've ever had here. It's been a real honour. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Murphy. <laughs> I mean, the story of him living on that boat is still absolutely chilling. Um, and I still feel bad for laughing. Um, but what, what a storyteller. What a personality. 
Johnny Mercer from 2019. So thank you for downloading another Political Party replay special. I will be back next week. Please leave a five-star written review. And, uh, well, see you in seven days. ta <laughs>